So right at the start, I'd like to set the context for this paper. Um, this is coming out of the early stages of my doctoral research, um, looking into the differences between widened participation practices in pre- and post-92 universities. As such, what I'm saying today is tentative and emerging. At this stage, my comments are based pr primarily on the access agreements of 10 institutions and from working myself within widening participation for the last three years. So I understand the complexity of the work that is being done and exact, that's exactly what this overarching project is going to examine, this disjuncture between policy and practice. Now, I'm going to try today to avoid talking about dead white people too much. Um, I will give a cursory mention to Borgia, but I've kind of pulled most about this presentation from another presentation I did before. Um, so the research questions for my project are looking at the idea of the differences in the discourses being used between access agreements in pre- and post-92 universities, um, which is what I'm going to focus on today. The wider research questions are looking at the differences between experience and practice of widening participation practitioners, um, the similarities and differences between these practitioners between pre- and post-92 institutions, the motivations for those practitioners, and how they reconcile their individual beliefs with institutional aims. Um, obviously, I'm not going to talk about all that today. I'm going to focus upon the first of the research questions. So the data I'm looking at is emerging from a critical discourse analysis of the 2016-2017 uh, access agreements produced by 10 different institutions. As a recent Social Market Foundation report has highlighted, the success of widening participation is still patchy at best, and it's the top 20 performing institutions that account for over half of the success, with nine institutions actually reporting a decrease in students from disadvantaged backgrounds um, between 2009 and 2014. Now, while this analysis is still a work in progress, I'm going to discuss some of the emergent themes today. As I'm sure everyone in the room is aware, the goals of widening participation work are framed by a single national policy, the National Strategy for Access and Student Success. Um, these plans and targets are set out against each institution wishing to charge fees above £6,000 within their access agreements. In spite of this, there's still a diverse range of approaches to how this policy is locally translated and enacted within individual institutions. Now, whilst there's an emerging body of research on these agreements, and certainly Colin um, and Claire Graham, amongst others, have done work on the agreements, my doctoral research is focused on a time where we've seen the first cohort of students go through with the full £9,000 fees. We've seen a removal of the student number cap. So we're almost in a slightly different environment before. Um, so in order to explore these differences, I chose to conduct a discourse analysis. Um, and I picked my 10 institutions to cover a wide range across England. So in each city, there's a pre and a post-92 institution, and I kind of anonymised them so that Overton is the um, institutions in the northeast, Norton in the northwest, Middleton in the Midlands, Riverton down in the southeast, and Western in the southwest. Now the reason for anonymity isn't so you can't guess the institutions, because I'm sure by googling some of the phrases of the policy you'll work that out. It's because it's not about the individual institutions per se, it's about the process and actually how there are differences in these pre and post-92s. So it's a two-stage project. The first stage is looking at this discourse analysis I'm talking about today. The second stage is going to be interviewing practitioners to look at this gap between policy and practice, which I'll talk about in my conclusions. Now, access agreements are extensive documents. So the analysis that I've done <laughs> is focused on certain elements of Fairclough's model of critical discourse analysis. Um, I identified these elements through a pilot study, and I'm looking at things like underlying assumptions, sources of legitimation, the words and lexical terms they use, the benchmarks of who they refer to, and the intertextualities, so the other documents they refer to. 
Um, during the process of coding these features, there were also other thematic areas of content that began to emerge, which are also discussed within the paper. So as you can see, there are quite a number of themes that are emerging. There's seven really key ones that have come out. I haven't got time to cover all these in full depth today. Um, but what's important to note is the wide variation in the level of detail given within these access agreements. The ones I looked at range from between 14 and 44 pages long. Um, there's one post-92 institution which has this unusually long agreement of 44 pages. Generally, they're slightly shorter than that. And on average, the pre-92s have a 19-page um, length for my sample and 14 pages for the post-92s. Much of this variation on analysis seems to come from the increased level of justification that the pre-92s are offering for the work they're doing. And this is something that's often framed through institutional values. So access agreements by their nature are value-laden documents. Essentially, they're stating the measures being put in place to ensure universities are equal for all, regardless of a potential student's background. However, which, which individuals are seen as potential students for each institution are shaped by the assumptions of what is needed to succeed um, within each institution and assumptions of who and what a university education is for. Whilst I'm going to avoid delving into theory too heavily here, this paper does explore ways in which institutional doxa, that is the common sense understandings of the way things are or should be, can shape the goals of these access agreements, and in some cases shift policy intentions from one of increased equity of access to one that simply reproduces inequalities by focusing on attracting more students who simply mirror their current um, student body. Okay, so there is an assumption that all students who meet the criteria for widening participation have a potential greater than those of their counterparts who do not make it to higher ed education. Yet they're seen in a position of deficit in relation to the ideal notion of a student. Obviously this is from um, the offer guidance that says that all those with the potential to benefit from higher education should have an equal opportunity to participate. However, this notion of potential is often taken by institutions to assume, assume a potential that is innate, something that can be identified through objective measures such as past attainment. Um, within Old Norton's Access Agreement, for example, they talk about targeting the most able disadvantaged students, and Old Riverton talk about the brightest young people. However, they're also framed in terms of a position of deficit, which is seen as solvable through pathological interventions, such as remedial study skill support. One example of this is Old Overton, who state that a more diverse student population means they need to commit to enhanced study skill support. Interventions and support for study skills, however, are not just beneficial to students from WP backgrounds. And in fact, some of the initiatives listed, such as Old Middleton, who talks about an enhanced tutoring system, could simply be considered as good academic practice. This does then bring into question, therefore, if funds specifically targeted to students from disadvantaged backgrounds are actually just being used to benefit the general population. So thinking about this kind of spending of money, the theme of investment and expenditure came through. Um, how each university allocates their funds varies depending on their different focuses on access, success and financial support. Um, eight of the institutions talk about their use of some of the fee income allocated as an investment, um, whereas others talk about it solely as an expenditure. These findings don't seem to be influenced by geographical pre or post-92 divisions, however. But where there is a talk of investment, it's often linked to measures of increased retention and success or recruitment-targeted work of post-16 students. Where they're talking about expenditure, it's quite often in relation to pre-16 work, to stuff that they can't see an immediate return on investment with. 
In a field of higher education that's becoming increasingly marketised, this is not so surprising, as retention can seem to have a direct impact on income and league tables, whereas the impact of outreach work is often less directly correlated, especially when we're talking about primary level work. Now, whilst access and success work is a statutory obligation, originating from moral purpose ensuring increased fees don't cause barriers to getting in and getting on in higher education. It's clear that many universities are seeing a dual role where the correct investment of these funds can pay dividends for their position within the market. Um, the focus of how these funds are allocated with pre-entry, post-entry and financial support, however, is probably a subject for an additional paper. So I'm going to park this for now. But there is a distinct difference in the percentage of the additional fee income that's being allocated to access and success. If you have a look, generally with the pre-92s, there is a lot higher percentage of their additional fee income that's being allocated to this sort of work compared to the um, post-92s. Now, some of this comes down to the fact that the pre-92s are spending a lot more on financial support. Obviously, something we've talked about that is contested, um, and you know the value could be questioned. But there's also distinct differences in who they define as eligible for financial support. And this varies dramatically from £16,000 annual income to £46,500. Now, I'm sure some of you in this room would be nodding in agreement with me that £42,500 probably isn't the most disadvantaged person you've dealt with. Um, and it seems to be a lot of the pre-92s are using this higher threshold to maybe target the financial support at students that might go somewhere else rather than students that truly wouldn't go to university. So if we think rather about higher education as a field, um, each university reports its figures in relation to an underrepresented group in terms of percentages. But and all the post-92 institutions talk about positive outcomes compared to sector averages, whereas the pre-92 institutions are more nuanced, almost trying to spin enduring inequalities in access in a better light. For example, three of the institutions talk about doing well in comparison to their peer institutions in the Russell Group. For example, Old Middleton states that they're proud of their strong outreach and retention record and being the vanguard of the Russell Group. Now, compare this to Old Overton, who talk about doing well within local markets, but they do this in terms of counteracting poor national performance. In fact, out of the pre-92s, it is only Old Western that talks about their targets solely in terms of their percentages and their performance in terms of what offer is set as their targets. For the pre-92s, they're looking at this performance in terms of competitors, those that they feel matter. If I come back to the idea of doctor, it's based on a presupposition of their position within a field and who actually matters. So the post-92s are seeing the whole of higher education as a field, whereas often the pre-92s are just seeing the Russell Group or other elite institutions of their field. Now, this isn't a homogenous approach across the whole sample. Old Western seems to be framing what they do in terms of genuinely addressing issues of inequality. So there's not something simply along the pre or post-92 divide. There is kind of this middle space where some institutions are kind of being more equitable. Okay. But the role of the geography within these emergent findings is not as marked as I might have thought, or as some of you might have thought. Given that disadvantage is often shaped by local economic circumstances, there seems to be little mention of the local within the agreements that I've analysed. Certainly, however, there is some acknowledgement that geography matters. As I said before, Old Overton talked about how successful they are at attracting WP students from the local region. Although what is important to consider here is the fact that all of these institutions do talk about targeting local schools. And yet, in many cases, their measure of success is the number of students that progress to their institution. 
This therefore is pro potentially problematic as the local institution in many cases may not offer the right courses or the right environment for the students to succeed. Um, this focus on recruitment to one institution as opposed to progression to higher education in general is surely one of the dangers of institutionally led widening participation within the increasingly marketised environment. We can see that by a local institution framing an individual as not having potential for the institution, they might miss out on widening participation interventions that would allow them to progress to higher education more generally. And that's something I've highlighted in more detail in the paper I've recently published. Okay, so different types of institutions can collaborate to ameliorate this work, uh, ameliorate this problem to some extent. And certainly Old and New Norton, amongst others, talk about working in collaboration. But I would question how far this actually solves the problem. After all, they're still offering a limited view of higher education in some places and streaming those who are seen as suitable for pre-92s one way and those who are seen not seen as suitable towards the post-92 institution. Potentially collaboration with third sector organisations is one way to temper this. However, these two have their own understandings of who is right for university, often shaped by their own experiences, which is often within elite forms of higher education. Now that's a subject beyond the discussion in this paper, but maybe something we want to pick up on later. So I keep talking about this idea of potential. Um, and financial circumstance is just one difference in scenes of who is deserving of widening participation work. Certain specific groups, such as care leavers, focus as features a target in all agreements, as do students from low participation neighbourhoods, however problematic we think low participation neighbourhoods may be. Um, and the groups that are mentioned are generally ones that are repeated within the national strategy and within guidance from offer. However, there's other groups that are stark in their admission for the agreements I've analysed, namely white working class boys and part-time students. I should note that fees for part-time students are mentioned in nearly all of these agreements. However, that's often the limit to their treatment of part-time students. Um, New Riverton does mention them as being a priority, but then actually fails to outline what they're going to offer other than independent advice and guidance for part-time students. Interestingly, New Western talks about the flexibility their modular scheme offers for part-time study, but it doesn't actually mention how these students might be supported differently to any of the other students. Now, as recent policy announcements have seen, there is an increased interest in these demographics at national level, and rightly so. But the cycle of production of these agreements means that this won't be integrated into the next cycle of agreements which are being written now, and potentially won't affect work until done until 2017-18. The problem that marketisation has brought about, though, is that higher education has become an increasingly reactive environment, especially in terms of recruitment, uh, recruitment cycles. That means often long-term intentions, while set out in policy, may be sidelined at the expense of quick wins to recruitments. In institutions where the functions of widening participation and recruitment are within the same team and the same human resource, this certainly has the potential to cause some conflict in aims and objectives. So another emerging theme from the analysis is that surrounding ideas of aspiration. Historically, widening participation work has been based on notions of raising aspirations, and I do use air quotes there, um, which was a central feature of policy and practice since the late 90s. However, there has been extensive research debunking the myths of low aspirations, for example, the work of Louise Archer, um, the work of Kim Allen, all sorts of other people um, have debunked this myth. Despite this, raising aspirations is mentioned every single one of the ten agreements I analysed, some to more extent than others, and there was one institution that looked like they were trying to search for alternative terms to use. They didn't use raising aspirations the whole way through the agreement until page 18, 
And then this, I think, talked about one program they did which was really good at raising aspirations. So this discourse is kind of still coming through despite the fact that low aspirations and a poverty of aspirations and agenda is something that's being developed. Um, within the latter part of this project, when I interview the practitioners, I plan to explore exactly what raising aspirations means to these people, because it may be this disjuncture between policy and practice that this idea of raising aspirations is kind of being weeded out to a certain extent. But it's interesting it's still sitting there within policy, even though we've developed it. Um, Neil Harrison and Richard Waller, in their paper at the BSA last week, talked about this idea of aspirations, expectations, and attainment being a nexus that link together. And I'm sure they can talk some more about that if they, you want them to. Um, but what's really interesting is this idea of raising aspirations doesn't stop when the students get to the university. Um, it even continues with current students at some of the institutions, with a number of them focusing on interventions to increase access to the professions and suggesting their current students really need to raise their aspirations to aim higher to better graduate careers, as if that's the only kind of logic as why they're not getting high-level um, graduate jobs. Okay, so the final theme I want to explore is the idea of research, um, which links nicely to what Neil was talking about this morning. Um, all the institutions I examined to a certain extent draw upon evidence through research and evaluation to justify their work. However, how this is done seems to be variable. Many seem to be talking about something is done within the institution. Old Overton, in fact, is the only institution that mentions about externally commissioning some of this research. Um, some of the other pre-92s, Old Riverton, Overton and Western, set themselves apart by talking about drawing on more rigorous academic evidence and citing names of academics that might be doing some of the work for them. However, um, there are a lot of pre-92s that are just talking about doing a survey of our students, or we asked our bursary holders what they, if they thought they were valuable. And I really would question that whether this sort of evaluation to justify policy is really what um, is valuable. Certainly there's a renewed focus on the importance of research and evaluation and thanks to offer and kind of putting in the guidance to make sure this is happening and um, national projects such as HEAT are beginning to kind of develop a more long-term strategic research and evaluation. However, a lot of the long-term strategic ev evaluation is based on this quantitative basis and I wonder whether we need to look at ways to create more rigorous qualitative evaluation that take, is taken outside the institutions to remove some of that institutional bias that might be there to try and confirm that what they're doing is good. So in conclusion, whilst there's much more I could talk about within these agreements, the papers begin to sh begun to show that through an exploration of the emerging themes within discourse analysis, there's a number of ways these access agreements are different from each other. And it's not simply differences based on geography or whether it's a pre or post-92 institution. Instead, this is something shaped by institutional values or doxa. Now whilst this is an emergent finding, actually even a complete analysis of the access agreements doesn't go far enough. My own experience from working within widening participation has shown that within, work within the field isn't always like Ron Seal. It doesn't quite do what it says on the tin. Um, as Sarah Ahmed has talked about, practitioners are often the ones who close the gap between words and deeds. Therefore, the second part of the project is going to focus on exploring the experiences of practitioners in relation to what they do and how this mirrors or deviates from the content in the agreements, hopefully foregrounding some of the messiness of practice, which is something that seems to be missing from the literature at the moment. I'm sure many of you in the room might have comments or questions related to your own experiences and practices, and hopefully I've left enough time to address some of these. 
Um, and obviously, as I mentioned, this is emerging, so any comments would be really welcome to help deepen the analysis further into the access group.